Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from the words of Henry Morris in a book called The Bible and Modern Science that dates back to 1950, Henry Morris being a Christian and a scientist at the same time, and you can do that, and he's proving that with every word that he writes. We're talking today about modern science and the flood. In the book of Genesis, beginning at chapter 6, is the record of the greatest physical catastrophe the earth has ever experienced, the global deluge of the days of Noah. All men, as well as all land animals, except those whom God chose to save in the ark, were destroyed by a great world-enveloping flood that was sent as divine punishment because, quote, all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth, end of quote. The biblical record of the deluge clearly refers to a great flood which completely inundated the entire globe. Some writers, because of supposed geological and archaeological difficulties, have maintained that the flood was only a basin overflow, applicable only to the known world of that period at most. Most critics of the Bible have, in fact, dismissed the entire tale as purely legendary. However, if the Bible is allowed to speak for itself, an unprejudiced reader would surely understand the writer of the account to be referring to a worldwide deluge. For example, the following passages can be sensibly understood in no other way. Uh, in Genesis 6.17, I do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. Genesis 7, 4, Every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. Genesis seven nineteen and 20, And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail. And the mountains were covered. Genesis 7.23 And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. Or Genesis 9.11 And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. One of two such passages might be passed off as figurative or as examples of Hebrew literary exaggeration. But when the same theme of universal inundation and destruction is emphasized again and again, in the verses quoted and in numerous others, then it seems quite out of reason to attempt to impress any other meaning upon the account than the writer was obviously intending to convey to his readers, which evidently was that of a worldwide catastrophic diluvial judgment. In fact, it is quite likely that with conditions of longevity prevailing as described in the Bible, the earth's population would have so increased by this time, that which is more than 1,600 years after the creation of Adam, 
that a large part of the earth would almost certainly have been populated, necessitating a worldwide flood, if all mankind were to be destroyed thereby. Furthermore, if all the mountains, even in the immediate vicinity, patiently including the mountains of Ararat, patently, that is, on which the ark eventually grounded, one peak of which is over three miles above sea level, if all of that were submerged, it would quite obviously be impossible for the flood not to have also attained the same elevation in other regions, since the record states that such conditions prevailed for 150 days at least. But even more important, the entire story is filled with manifest absurdities if the flood described were only a localized event. The elaborate provisions for the preservation of life in the ark were utterly unnecessary and unwarranted. God could merely have warned Noah to move into a region where the flood would not come, which he could have done with far less time and labor than was needed in constructing and outfitting the ark. Now, the same is true for the animals, which the record says God caused to come to the ark. The birds especially might easily have flown to dry land. Finally, God's promise that there would never again be such a destructive flood upon the earth would have been proved false, because there have been many floods since, which were at least as great as that envisioned by the proponents of that local flood theory. The biblical record implies that the cause and character of the flood was both tidal and atmospheric. Such a gigantic catastrophe must have profoundly changed the geographic and stratigraphic features of the Earth's surface as it then was, making it impossible now to discern geologically with any degree of assurance those things that took place in the ages before the flood. Thus, if actually there was a worldwide aqueous calamity of the sort described in the Bible, the fossil record becomes meaningless as far as proving evolution is concerned. And as we have seen, world history, as interpreted from fossils, is the only evidence of any value remaining for the theory of evolution. Consequently, in spite of overwhelming ethnological, philological, archaeological, and geological evidence that there actually was a universal deluge, evolutionary scientists dogmatically maintain that the flood story of the Bible is purely legendary. The credo which has been held by most geologists for over a hundred years is called uniformitarianism. This doctrine assumes the assumption that all natural observable phenomena in both the living and the non-living realms, can be explained as to origin and development in terms of purely natural laws and processes. As applied to geology, it means that all the mountains, the rivers, the huge stratigraphic deposits, in short, all features of the earth's surface are explainable as the result of the slow processes of sedimentation, erosion, contraction, radioactivity, and other actions of natural forces, 
all working over almost infinitely long periods of time. This theory is based not so much on objective proof as on a process of rationalization, it being assumed unscientific to invoke unnatural events such as creation or the flood to explain phenomena that now seem to conform to natural laws. The popularity of uniformitarianism dates from its enunciation by Sir Charles Lyell, a good many years before the appearance of Darwin's work, which was profoundly influenced by that of Lyell. However, the idea was not at all new. Its origin is hidden in the obscurity of antiquity and always found has always found expression in some form or another. With the renewed interest in both science and Christianity that came with the Renaissance period, nevertheless the dominant theory of geology became the flood theory and remained so until the time of Lyell and Darwin. A great many brilliant investigators held this view, which was based not on a philosophy or even on faith, but on thousands of observed facts in the field. It is true that some of these men developed bizarre explanations for some of the data, but the common-sense logic of much of their writings is still irrefutable. The geologic time scale, which we have mentioned previously, and which is the backbone of the uniformitarian view of geology, was worked out long ago, chiefly from the observed order of the fossils in a small corner of Western Europe and in New York State. Now, there are assumed to be four great eras. Number one, the primary, which is often classed as two eras, the Archeozoic and the Proterozoic. The primary is supposed to represent the ages before life appeared to any extent on the earth. It is denoted by those rocks which contain few or no fossils and are thus supposed to be the oldest rocks of all. Number two, the Paleozoic era is marked by rocks containing fossils of the lower forms of life, especially invertebrates, fishes, insects, and amphibians. It is subdivided into several large systems according to the forms of life found in the various rocks. These systems are, beginning with the oldest, the Cambrian, the Ordovician, the Silurian, the Devonian, the Carboniferous, excuse me, now commonly replaced by two systems, the Mississippian and the Pennsylvanian, and the Permian. Of course, each system is further subdivided. Number three, the Mesozoic era is supposed to be the age of reptiles and is divided into three main systems, the Triassic, the Jurassic, and the Cretaceous. The Cenozoic era is the last of the geologic eras and is divided into two main systems. The first of these is called the Tertiary. It's also known as the age of mammals. And there are five series in this system known in ascending order as the Paleocene, the Eocene, the Oligocene, the Miocene, and the Pliocene. The other system, number four, is usually called the Quaternary, includes the Pleistocene series in which man is supposed to have appeared. 
although many paleontologists just now claim that man must have appeared well back into the tertiary because of the many finds of skeletons and artifacts of true humans in possible tertiary deposits. The quaternary also includes the, the recent, often called the age of man. Well, it is usually to be inferred from most textbooks that this order, not only of the geologic eras, but also of the systems and series and even formations, is observed all over the world in the same inviolable order. This idea, in a different form, was first developed by Professor Werner, a German who taught that the stratigraphic deposits always occurred in the same vertical order according to their mineral or lithologic character. Granites, limestones, schists, sandstones, and so forth. This theory was called the onion coat theory and was very widely held by materialistic geologists for a long time. Um, but it has now given way to a theory of biological onion coats in which the order of the fossils is thought to be always the same. The mineral or lithologic nature of the rocks is now considered incidental. The age and chronological position of any given formation depending determinately upon the contained fossils. Well, the circle of reasoning involved here should be immediately evident. The fact of evolution is necessarily assumed in building up the geological series. Rocks containing simpler fossils are called old, and rocks containing more complex and specialized forms are considered young. Then the paleontological series thus constructed is taken as proof of the fact of evolution. <laughs> this method of identifying the rocks cannot be overemphasized. The physical characteristics, even the stratigraphical position, are given only very minor consideration when their age is being decided. This matter depends almost entirely upon the contained fossils and is usually settled by laboratory workers who may never have seen the actual deposits. However, in spite of the apparent dangers involved in such procedures, this system of classification seems to have worked out fairly satisfactorily, at least in North America and Europe, although there still remains considerable doubt as to ultimate correlation with the geology of other parts of the world. It seems that, in general, the time order of deposition of the strata is represented fairly well by the geologic time classification as given. The really essential point of difference between the commonly accepted geology and flood geology is not the relative time of deposition of different rock strata, but the actual total time elapsed while they were being deposited. First, however, it's well to point out that the accepted stratigraphic order and system is far from inviolable and involves many hard-to-explain exceptions and anomalies. And we'll get to those next time. Thank you so much for being here and listening. And I ask that you look around the site and find that we have many of the church's great preachers here. 
We have persecution stories from North Korea in English and Korean, a lot of Bible studies on a number of subjects. There's a blog. And if you want more, please consider visiting my YouTube channel known as Pasturelands or buying one of my books at Amazon.com or just contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com and I'll tell you about our Saturday evening Zoom meeting for men and our Tuesday noon meeting for men and women. Well, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun and this audio is being released on the 4th of August, 2022. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.